Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Think of the most exciting thing you did in college. Are you thinking about a science class? This is Colleen Shaddix for the Yale Office of Public Affairs talking with Dr. Scott Strobel, whose students venture into the rainforest with him to become engaged in and fall in love with science. He is a Howard Hughes Medical Institute professor, part of a program that aims to make science fascinating. The website for your course talks about activities that inspire the scientific imagination. How do you achieve that? The goal of the course was to, uh, at the outset, was to give students uh, intellectual ownership for their for their projects, which mm-hmm. meant that uh, we wanted to give them an opportunity to, to have a, a chance to discover something new, uh, to be able to look in uh, areas and look at things that people hadn't looked at before. And so the focus uh, was to take them to an area of very high biodiversity uh, and then to look for microbes associated with the plants that are located in these areas. Mm-hmm. And so uh, in the rainforests of Ecuador and Peru and in the upper Amazon, there are uh, just a huge variety of plants. Uh, and so by taking the students to that area and, and, and asking them to select what plants they wish to sample from, uh, they had a very good chance of finding something that somebody hadn't seen before. Okay? Uh, and so by giving them a chance to uh, explore and to define their own path and to define uh, largely what they discover and how they look for it, uh, it very much engages students in a way that uh, a typical, say, science laboratory doesn't. Um, oftentimes science laboratories in, the, in a typical university setting are more are less laboratory than they are uh, sort of demonstration labs, mm-hmm. okay, where you know what the outcome is and the goal is to get to the point where you reproduce what, the, what you're told the answer should be. Uh, whereas in this case, I honestly have no idea what they'll find. Uh, and really no, nobody else does either, and that's what makes it really fun. What's the effect of that kind of typical course on a student's interest in science? The typical lab sort yeah. of course? The typical, um, I'll do it, then you do well, it. Well, I mean, I think that a lot of times students view that as it's a hurdle they have to jump over. It's a requirement that they have to fulfill, whether it be for graduation in the major uh, or in order to go to medical school. Uh, so the course that we're talking about here, which is uh, Rainforest Expedition and Laboratory, it's really a course in bioprospecting, um, that course doesn't fulfill any obvious requirements. So Mm -hmm. it doesn't get you into medical school. It isn't really a course that fulfills any kind of core curriculum aspect of the major. Uh, But it engages them in ways that uh, a few other courses, that well, no other course that I've participated in in does. One thing I've noticed is that when students get engaged in a project, they begin to use a different set of words than they use if it's a project that they're not, that isn't really theirs. Mm -hmm. They begin to use first-person pronouns. They begin to describe the project as my project or uh, my clone or my experiment, okay, as opposed to describing it as the postdocs or the graduate students or, the, you know, some generic laboratory's mm-hmm. version. Um, and so as we're walking through the jungle, it's really fun to hear students call out, oh, I found my plant, or, or sometimes even better, uh, oh, we found her plant, in the sense that everybody's looking for everybody else's because everybody knows what everybody's looking for. Uh, so, oh, we found something Marina was looking for. Or, oh, we found right. something that, uh, that um, Pu Yao was looking for. Okay, and so in that sense, it becomes both a collective project, but also a project that very much is, is one that is owned by individuals, and they can get excited about it because it's theirs.
Have you seen people actually change their career aspirations as a result of the experience? It, it's hard to know. Um, they've we've only done it for one year now. Uh, we went to we went to Peru, uh, right on the border border with Bolivia last year with 15 students, um, and those students, with the one exception, are still actually here at Yale. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've only had one graduate, uh, and she's now actually working at the National Institute of Aging. Um, and has been has spent the past year here, past year there. And interestingly, she took some of the samples that we collected in Peru with her uh, to study at the National Institute of Aging. She was specifically looking at antioxidants uh, with the possibility of being useful in sort of re- issues related to, to aging and, and cellular uh, decay. Uh, and so she took those reagents with her and continued the project. So that's the only person who's actually left Yale at this point. Everybody else is still on campus. Now, if you mean, did they change their career because they changed their major? Yeah, maybe. A few. Um, A few, yeah. And some, you know, are thinking, oh, maybe I should go into getting a PhD instead of just going to medical school. Um, But we'll see what actually happens when it comes time for them to apply. Is that the goal, though? I mean, what's success for you? That's not my goal. Um, interestingly, the, the guy who's in charge of Howard Hughes Medical Institute, uh, uh, his name's Tom Check, and I did a postdoc with him when I was in my training. And so he and I were having lunch after we de- I described this sort of program to him. Uh, and we should spend a few minutes talking about what the program is. But, um, and uh, he said, all you're going to do, it sounds great, sounds wonderful, but what's going to happen is you're just going to get kids into medical school. Mm-hmm. And I was, I, I was almost angry at him for saying <laughs> this, okay? Now, there's nothing wrong with going to medical school, and I'm perfectly happy if the students who take the class decide to do that. But this is certainly not a pre-med requirement. And what I've found is that the expectations, the amount of time that they have to give to this effort is sufficiently large that people that are sort of standard traditional pre-med students aren't interested. Um, it's just too much work. They have to give up all of spring break. They have to give up their entire summer because uh, it goes basically from January till August. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we get students that are really serious about doing science and exploring the natural world as a result of it. So, And that's the goal? That's the getting goal. Getting people it's, interested it's in It's that science. and getting them engaged in a scientific effort where it's clear that they can make a contribution. You don't have to have a PhD. You don't have to be a postdoc to be able to make an original novel observation about the natural world. You, c- you too, can discover new species and in fact, we probably discovered uh, the better part of eight new genera. Okay, so it's not just the case that you know we've sort of uh, split hairs over finding a new organism. Mm-hmm. We found organisms that are so diverse from what's uh, currently known that we almost can't recognize what they are. Wow. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the complexity of what you're doing. We should we should make it clear that they're not just looking for cool plants. They're doing a great deal of laboratory work to see if these agents can be developed into something. They need to master or at least get a good grip on a lot of different branches of science to accomplish that. Did people think it was realistic to do this with undergraduates? Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, everybody's... Let's describe the course, and then the the realistic question is one I'm still trying to grapple (laughs) with myself. So... um, so the course, what, what it is, is it's a course that goes through spring semesters. So that's January till the end of April, uh, in the middle of which is spring break, and that's a two-week break at Yale. So we actually spend those two weeks in South America. Um, so we take everybody on a trip down there, and uh, we spend time in a variety of different ecosystems. This past year, uh, we went to Ecuador, and we spent time in the rainforest. Uh, 
We spent time in the cloud forest. We also spent time in a dry forest. And we were going to go to a mangrove forest, but the day that we were there, uh, we arrived as the tide had gone out. So there wasn't much <coughs> water in the mangrove mm -hmm. that day. Uh, but anyway, so we're trying to look at and sample a variety of different ecosystems. Um, and what the students are then exp uh, supposed to do is collect plant samples uh, and use those uh, in a laboratory that extends through the rest of the semester and into the summer to isolate microbes. So these are endophytic organisms associated with the plant, both bacterial and fungal. Endophytic is? Uh, so it means it's actually in the interior of the plant tissue. So it's not on the surface. That would be uh, an epiphyte. Uh, these are endophytes that are actually inside the plant. Uh, it's a niche, a biological niche that in general people haven't looked at for where organisms would be. Uh, and that's what gives us our sort of new angle that, mm -hmm. they, can, uh, that they can expect to find something new. Uh, and as they uh, put these materials onto petri dishes, uh, the endophytes begin to grow out. Uh, and then over the course of the summer, they isolate them, characterize them to find where they are in the phylogenetic tree of life, screen them for uh, antibacterial anti or antifungal or other types of biological activity, and then try to isolate the natural products that are responsible for that activity. So it's a project that li literally spans from sort of ecology and botany on one end uh, where you have a field, where you have field work to uh, natural product isolation and chemical uh, characterization at the other end, and we've had we've had three students now who have gone the, that extreme, mm -hmm. in that they did biological isolation of materials, and actually by the time they were done, had a natural product that they had a small molecule crystal structure of. So they really saw the entire pathway of scientific discovery in that sense. Now, obviously, Yale students are pretty bright, but you're, you're taking people very far very quickly. What yeah. makes that possible? Well, part of it is is that we have a number of people that are participating in the project that are very, very good. Uh, so, for example, I'm not a rainforest, certainly not a upper Amazon botanist by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, and so we actually, on our trip, we have uh, two individuals that go with us. One is my father, who's a, a trained botanist. Uh, his name's Gary Strobel from Montana State University. Uh, and the other person who goes with us is actually uh, Percy Nunez. So he's a professor at Cusco University in Peru. Uh, and he's phenomenal. He knows every plant, every, the scientific names of all these plants, and furthermore, what the ethnobotanical history of these plants uh, are. So he provides great sort of uh, field guide service to, mm -hmm. uh, to the students, very much uh, coaching them on whatever themes they are looking for in terms of the plants or identifying particular plants they're targeting. Um, the other thing I've found is that because we're doing not just uh, repetitive science but actually novel science, that it's very easy to get faculty on throughout the campus to become engaged and get interested in, mm -hmm. in um, participating with the undergraduates. And so uh, we're able to tap into the many resources that Yale has available. So like the micro-screening facility that Craig Cruz and Janie Merkel run, uh, they're very anxious and very willing to participate in the project uh, and allowing the students to use the instrumentation that they have. Um, uh, we've found that people in the medical school are very excited, so Peggy Hostetter in pediatrics and microbial pathogenesis mm -hmm. uh, is working with us to develop assays that we can screen these microbes and their extracts against. Uh, so even though the students aren't experts in all these things, what we find is that because it's sort of new and exciting uh, and there's a great chance for scientific discovery, all the faculty 
uh, that, you know, are so great at Yale, mm-hmm. are willing to participate and, and just do it because of the love and interest and the excitement about the science. So uh, I think that probably more than anything, the fact that the students are really good and then you can bring all these resources to bear on the problem, uh, make it so that we can do some pretty neat things. Let's talk a little bit more about your dad. Um, he discovered the fungus that gives us the anti cancer drug Taxol, right? Yeah, so what he found was that there is the Taxol actually comes from the yew trees, uh, the bark of yew trees. And what he found is that there is a microbe, an endophytic organism, which is specifically a fungus uh, that is uh, associated with yew trees that actually can make the same natural product that the yew tree makes. Okay, so uh, so he found fungal Taxol. It was on the front page of the USA Today about 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, And so his path, and I should say that the work we're doing here is really following after his example. Mm -hmm. His path was, well, if if the Pacific U makes tax, if the Pacific U harbors a fungus that makes taxol, uh, could it be that there's other fungi in other U trees around the world that do? And so he went out sampling U trees from all kinds of different sources uh, and found a variety of different uh, fungi that do make taxol. But in the course of that, he's like, well, while I'm here, why not sample other trees and see what other fungi are available? Mm -hmm. Uh, and through the course of that, he's discovered a variety of different uh, novel uh, endophytic organisms that make novel natural products. Uh, and the frequency with which he could do this was what inspired me to say, well, let's do this with undergraduates. So you realized that looking for these endophytes was almost like sending them off to fish in a stream that had just been stocked. There yeah, was so exactly. much there. Yeah. They were going to be successful. That's right. Because there's a very high probability of finding something new and a very high probability uh, that you will... Uh, find something important as well. Now, your dad went with you to Peru last year and Ecuador this year. Did he impart to you the kind of creative curiosity that you're trying to give your students? I, I, I think so. When I, was, uh, when I was a kid, he'd bring me up to uh, his laboratory and sort of set me loose. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually that meant playing around with the balance uh, and the ice machine. Uh, and we would I have these fond memories of... Uh, um, making uh, orange tang Slurpees <laughs> out of the ice, which probably wasn't as clean as the ice should be for A drinking, lot of scientists get their start that yeah. way, yeah. So, um, I mean, he definitely had me playing around in the lab when I was young. When I was in high school, I spent time in the lab during the summers. Uh, the year before I started grad school, or the summer before I started grad school, I was working uh, in his lab, and that was a sort of fateful summer where he, this Dutch elm disease experiment was performed. Mm-hmm. So I got to see all of that and the press response to that all firsthand. Um, so, yeah, it's very much the case that I've been connected to, uh, to his career and been associated with uh, him as a scientist for a long time. It's, you know, it's, he's a very creative and novel, uh, novel guy when it comes to how he does his research. So I'd, I'm not nearly as creative as he is, but uh, I definitely have tried to follow his example for, uh, for scientific effort. The conventional wisdom is that if you want to advance at a major research university, you spend your time doing research. You don't invest a lot of energy in teaching undergraduates. But you're obviously very invested in teaching, and you're also doing very important, successful research on RNA. In fact, you were recently awarded the Shearing Plow Research Institute Award, which recognizes young investigators for outstanding research at an early stage of their careers. Does your experience prove that teaching and research don't have to be an either-or proposition? I like to think that this is a demonstration that you can do both, that you can balance both, and that you can engage undergraduates in real science. Um, 
So I very much value the teaching that I do in the classroom. Um, and this, but this really isn't classroom instruction. This is very much mm -hmm. hands-on, in the lab, high probability of being able to publish. Um, and it, it demonstrates that you can do science with undergraduates that's at a, that it's at a serious level and engaging to both the students as well as the scientific community. But as you said, they're not just furthering your program of research, which is often what happens. They're mm -hmm. sort of doing their own research. So you are... They really are doing their own research, okay? But uh, in that sense, I feel like I'm sort of more of a guide than mm -hmm. a... Uh, I'm a facilitator. Mm -hmm. um, I give them the environment and give them the resource and give them the context they need to be able to succeed and then just let them go. Um, so it's not micromanaging every step of what they're doing. Uh, and so in that sense, it is possible to balance uh, that teaching effort with the sort of uh, scientific research effort we have on RNA. So. Uh, at the moment, the two are a little bit separate in my brain in mm -hmm. terms of what uh, what's happening with these with these two scientific efforts. But I anticipate over the course of the next couple of years uh, that they will converge more and more, and that there will be a postdoctoral graduate student based effort to follow up on some of probably the discoveries that these undergraduates make, just because they won't be here long enough to right. follow up on all of them themselves. As you said earlier, it's it's really atypical to generate this level of excitement and to have students have this kind of ownership. What price do we pay as a society for not doing more science education that way? It's really interesting to look at um, sort of the average third grader mm -hmm. and and give them anything that even looks scientific and and see what kind of science scientists they are. Uh, they ask all kinds of great questions. They probe and poke and manipulate. I mean, when it comes down to it, from the age f from the age that you start to uh, discover your world until about fourth grade, we really are scientists. We're trying to figure out how this world that we're looking at works. Okay, and then somewhere around fourth grade, when like intense scientific sounding uh, courses begin to be taught to us, where there's a bunch of things that are you say this is what science is and what you have to memorize and what you have to learn. And we just drive science out of these kids, um, you know, because we tell them they're not smart enough or that they can't memorize enough or that there's just so much that they have to learn in order to be able to make a contribution scientifically. And it's, it is really a shame, okay, because people conclude that they can't do science when, in fact, they've been doing it their whole mm -hmm. lives up to that point. Um, and so it is true that, it's probably true that science isn't for everybody, uh, but it is definitely the case that many, many more people could be uh, involved and understand and participate in the scientific process than, uh, than there are. I, I like to say that science isn't, science isn't a body of knowledge as much as it is a process. It's not like an encyclopedia of facts you memorize. It's, it's a way you look at and approach the world. Uh, in terms of observing it and trying to figure out how it works. It gets very vocabulary-based oh very gosh, quickly. Yes. Learning science is like learning a, a foreign language. But curiously, we never actually let the students speak that foreign language. We have mm. them read it. So yeah. they, read about, they read about science in books, and there's words that are highlighted, and all these words are new vocabulary that they're supposed to memorize. Um, but then the only place they use those words is on a test. It's not like, they, it's not like a spoken vocabulary that they use very often. Okay. Um, so in various courses I teach, including this one, the idea is to get people talking about 
you know, what they're, what they need to know. Cause you have to know that vocabulary in order to like speak coherently with other scientists. And so to get them speaking in that vocabulary, I think is an important part of it. Cause you can't just read a foreign language. You have to speak it as well. Now I have an eighth grader whose interest in science has already been very effectively extinguished, which <laughs> um, makes me ask the kind of discovery based thing that you're talking about. Obviously elementary schools aren't going to take kids to the rainforest, but have you learned lessons that could be translated down and implemented in any school? It possibly. I mean, the the culturing that we do isn't isn't that expensive. Um, the best example I can give of this um, is somebody who's a little bit further into their pro program than, than I am. Uh, this is a guy named Graham Hatful. He's at the uh, University of Pittsburgh. Uh, and his program is it was actually also an inspiration for what we ended up doing. He's also funded by the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. And what he was doing is going out and giving students, he was handing students a vial and saying, go out and collect some dirt, which is similar to me handing them a plastic bag and saying, go out and collect some you know, plant tissue. Mm -hmm. um, and so he gave them this vial. They went out and figured out, they made some decision about whether they were going to collect the dirt. And then he was trying to, and then he was using that dirt to isolate uh, bacteriophages, uh, viruses of bacteria uh, that would infect specifically mycobacteria. All right. And he found dozens, hundreds of these, or rather the students did. And every place they looked, they found something, and each one of them was different. They never found the same thing twice. So there was a very high probability of new discovery. Mm -hmm. And the collective information that they gathered was then useful, and he published this in a variety of places. Okay, So every student had a very high probability of discovery and finding something novel that they could then have ownership of. And that was something you could literally do with a sample in your backyard. So it is the case that there's plants all around us. All those plants have endophytes. And although we haven't gotten to the point where we could say, okay, we're going to do this with junior high school kids or uh, high school kids, it's something that literally anybody can do, uh, and technically it's not very hard. Um, now, you're likely to find more things novel in the upper Amazon than you are in your backyard, but mm -hmm. nevertheless, even that might surprise us. I'm not sure. I don't know that anybody's really looked. Thank you. We've been talking with Dr. Scott Strobel, Chair of Molecular Biophysics and Biochemistry at Yale University and a Howard Hughes Medical Institute professor.